0: Part 1, Chapter 1, Section 1 of Chance This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Read by Peter Dan Chance by Joseph Conrad Part 1, The Damsel. Chapter 1, Young Powell and His Chance Section 1 I believe he had seen us out of the window, coming off to dine in the dinghy of a 14-ton yawl belonging to Marlow, my host and skipper. We helped the boy we had with us to haul the boat up on the landing stage before we went up to the Riverside Inn, where we found our new acquaintance eating his dinner in dignified loneliness at the head of a long table, white and inhospitable like a bank. The red tint of his clear-cut face with trim short black whiskers under a cap of curly iron-grey hair was the only warm spot in the dinginess of that room cooled by the cheerless tablecloth. We knew him already by sight as the owner of a little five-ton cutter, which he sailed alone, apparently, a fellow yachtsman in the unpretending band of fanatics who cruise at the mouth of the Thames. But the first time he addressed the waiter sharply as steward, We knew him at once for a sailor as well as a yachtsman. Presently he had occasion to reprove that same waiter for the slovenly manner in which the dinner was served. He did it with considerable energy and then turned to us. If we at sea, he declared, went about our work as people ashore, high and low, go about theirs, we should never make a living. No one would employ us. And moreover, no ship navigated and sailed in the happy-go-lucky manner people conduct their business on shore would ever arrive into port. Since he had retired from the sea, he had been astonished to discover that the educated people were not much better than the others. No one seemed to take any proper pride in his work, from plumbers who were simply thieves to, say, newspaper men. He seemed to think them a specially intellectual class, who never, by any chance, gave a correct version of the simplest affair. This universal inefficiency of what he called the shore Gang, he ascribed in general to the want of responsibility and to a sense of security. They see, he went on, that no matter what they do, this tight little island won't turn turtle with them or spring a leak and go to the bottom with their wives and children. From this point, the conversation took a special turn relating exclusively to sea life. On that subject, he got quickly in touch with Marlow, who in his time had followed the sea. They kept up a lively exchange of reminiscences while I listened. They agreed that the happiest time in their lives was as youngsters in good ships, with no care in the world but not to lose a watch below when at sea, and not a moment's time in going ashore after work hours when in harbour. They agreed also as to the proudest moment they had known in that calling, which is never embraced on rational and practical grounds because of the glamour of its romantic associations. It was the moment when they had passed successfully their first examination and left the seamanship examiner with a little precious slip of blue paper in their hands. That day I would have called the Queen my cousin, declared our new acquaintance enthusiastically. At that time, the Marine Board examinations took place at the St Catherine Dock House on Tower Hill, and he informed us that he had a special affection for the view of that historical locality, with the gardens to the left, the front of the mint to the right, the miserable tumble-down little houses farther away, a cab stand, boot blacks squatting on the edge of the pavement, and a pair of big policemen gazing with an air of superiority at the doors of the Black Horse Public House across the road. This was the part of the world, he said, his eyes first took notice of on the finest day of his life. He had emerged from the main entrance of St Catherine's Dock House, a full-fledged second mate after the hottest time of his life with Captain R, the most dreaded of the three seamanship examiners, who at the time were responsible for the merchant service officers qualifying in the Port of London. We all who were preparing to pass, he said, used to shake in our shoes at the idea of going before him. He kept me for an hour and a half in the torture chamber and behaved as though he hated me. He kept his eyes shaded with one of his hands. Suddenly he let it drop, saying, ''You will do.'' Before I realised what he meant, he was pushing the blue slip across the table. I jumped up as if my chair had caught fire. ''Thank you, sir,'' says I, grabbing the paper. ''Good morning. Good luck to you,'' he growls at me. The old doorkeeper fussed out of the cloakroom with my hat, they always do, but he looked very hard at me before he ventured to ask, in a sort of timid whisper, got through all right, sir? For all answer, I dropped a half-crown into his soft, broad palm. Well, says he, with a sudden grin from ear to ear, I never knew him to keep any of you gentlemen so long. He failed two second mates this morning before your turn came. Less than twenty minutes each, that's about his usual time. I found myself downstairs without being aware of the steps, as if I had floated down the staircase. The finest day in my life. The day you get your first command is nothing to it. For one thing, a man is not so young then, and for another, with us, you know, there is nothing much more to expect. Yes, the finest day of one's life, no doubt, but then, it is just a day, and no more. What comes after is about the most unpleasant time for a youngster, the trying to get an officer's berth with nothing much to show but a brand new certificate. It is surprising how useless you find that piece of ass's skin that you have been putting yourself in such a state about. It didn't strike me at the time that a board of trade certificate does not make an officer, not by a long, long way. But the skippers of the ships I was haunting with demands for a job knew that very well. I don't wonder at them now, and I don't blame them either. But this trying to get a ship is pretty hard on a youngster all the same. He went on then to tell us how tired he was, and how discouraged by this lesson of disillusion following swiftly upon the finest day of his life. He told us how he went the round of all the ship owners' offices in the city, where some junior clerk would furnish him with printed forms of application, which he took home to fill up in the evening. He used to run out just before midnight to post them in the nearest pillar box. And that was all that ever came of it. In his own words, he might just as well have dropped them all properly addressed and stamped into the sewer grating. Then, one day, as he was wending his weary way to the docks, he met a friend and former shipmate a little older than himself outside the Fenchurch Street railway station. He craved for sympathy, but his friend had just got a ship that very morning and was hurrying home in a state of outward joy and inward uneasiness, usual to a sailor who, after many days of waiting, suddenly gets a berth. This friend had the time to condole with him but briefly. He must be moving. Then, as he was running off over his shoulder, as it were, he suggested, Why don't you go and speak to Mr Powell in the shipping office? Our friend objected that he did not know Mr Powell from Adam. And the other, already pretty near round the corner, shouted back advice, "'Go to the private door of the shipping office and walk right up to him. "'His desk is by the window. Go up boldly and say I sent you.' Our new acquaintance, looking from one to the other of us, declared, "'Upon my word I had grown so desperate that I would have gone boldly up to the devil himself "'on the mere hint that he had a second mate's job to give away.' It was at this point that, interrupting his flow of talk to light his pipe, but holding us with his eye, he inquired whether we had known Powell. Marlow, with a slight reminiscent smile, murmured that he remembered him very well. Then there was a pause. Our new acquaintance had become involved in a vexatious difficulty with his pipe, which had suddenly betrayed his trust and disappointed his anticipation of self-indulgence. To keep the ball rolling, I asked Marlowe if this Powell was remarkable in any way. He was not exactly remarkable, Marlowe answered with his usual nonchalance. In a general way, it's very difficult for one to become remarkable. People won't take sufficient notice of one, don't you know? I remember Powell so well, simply because, as one of the shipping masters in the Port of London, he dispatched me to sea on several long stages of my sailor's pilgrimage. He resembled Socrates. I mean, he resembled him genuinely, that is, in the face. A philosophical mind is but an accident. He reproduced exactly the familiar bust of the immortal sage, if you will imagine the bust with a high top hat riding far on the back of the head and a black coat over the shoulders. As I never saw him except from the other side of the long official counter bearing the five writing desks of the five shipping masters, Mr Powell has remained a bust to me. Our new acquaintance advanced now from the mantelpiece with his pipe in good working order. What was the most remarkable about Powell, he enunciated dogmatically with his head in a cloud of smoke, is that he should have had just that name. You see, my name happens to be Powell too. It was clear that this intelligence was not imparted to us for social purposes. It required no acknowledgement. We continued to gaze at him with expectant eyes. He gave himself up to the vigorous enjoyment of his pipe for a silent minute or two. Then, picking up the thread of his story, he told us how he had started hot foot for Tower Hill. He had not been that way since the day of his examination, the finest day of his life, the day of his overweening pride. It was very different now. He would not have called the Queen his cousin still, but this time it was from a sense of profound abasement. He didn't think himself good enough for anybody's kinship. He envied the purple-nosed old cab drivers on the stand, the boot-black boys at the edge of the pavement, the two large bobbies pacing slowly along the tower garden's railings in the consciousness of their infallible might, and the bright scarlet sentries walking smartly to and fro before the mint. He envied them their places in the scheme of world's labour. And he envied also the miserable, sallow, thin-faced loafers, blinking their obscene eyes and rubbing their greasy shoulders against the door-jambs of the Black Horse pub, because they were too far gone to feel their degradation. I must render the man the justice that he conveyed very well to us the sense of his youthful hopelessness, surprised at not finding its place in the sun, and no recognition of its right to live. He went up the outer steps of St Catherine's dock-house. The very steps from which he had some six weeks before surveyed the cab-stand, the buildings, the policemen, the boot-blacks, the paint-gilt, the plate-glass of the black horse with the eye of a conqueror. At the time he had been at the bottom of his heart, surprised that all this had not greeted him with song and incense, but now, he made no secret of it, he made his entry in a slinking fashion, past the doorkeeper's glass box. "'I hadn't any half-crowns to spare for tips,' he remarked grimly. "'The man, however, ran out after him, asking, "'What do you require?' "'But with a grateful glance up at the first floor "'in remembrance of Captain R.'s examination room. "'How easy and delightful all that had been.' "'He bolted down a flight leading to the basement "'and found himself in a place of dusk and mystery and many doors. "'He had been afraid of being stopped by some rule of no admittance. "'However, he was not pursued.' The basement of St Catherine's Dock House is vast in extent and confusing in its plan. Pale shafts of light slant from above into the gloom of its chilly passages. Powell wandered up and down there like an early Christian refugee in the catacombs, but what little faith he had in the success of his enterprise was oozing out at his fingertips. At a dark turn, under a gas bracket whose flame was half turned down, his self-confidence abandoned him altogether. I stood there to think a little, he said. A foolish thing to do, because of course I got scared. What could you expect? It takes some nerve to tackle a stranger with a request for a favour. I wished my namesake pal had been the devil himself. I felt somehow it would have been an easier job. You see, I never believed in the devil enough to be scared of him, but a man can make himself very unpleasant. I looked at a lot of doors, all shut tight, with a growing conviction that I would never have the pluck to open one of them. Thinking is no good for one's nerves. I concluded I would give up the whole business. But I didn't give up in the end, and I'll tell you what stopped me. It was the recollection of that confounded doorkeeper who had called after me. I felt sure the fellow would be on the lookout at the head of the stairs. If he asked me what I had been after, as he had the right to do, I wouldn't know what to answer that wouldn't make me look silly, if no worse. I got very hot. There was no chance of slinking out of this business. I had lost my bearings somehow down there. At the many doors of various sizes, right and left, a good few had glazed lights above. Some, however, must have led merely into lumber rooms or such like, because when I brought myself to try one or two, I was disconcerted to find that they were locked. I stood there, irresolute and uneasy, like a baffled thief. The confounded basement was as still as a grave, and I became aware of my heartbeats. Very uncomfortable sensation. Never happened to me before, or since. A bigger door to the left of me, with a large brass handle, looked as if it might lead into the shipping office. I tried it, setting my teeth. Here goes! It came open quite easily, and lo, the place it opened into was hardly any bigger than a cupboard. Anyhow, it wasn't more than ten feet by twelve, and as I, in a way, expected to see the big, shadowy, cellar-like extent of the shipping office where I had been once or twice before, I was extremely startled. A gas bracket hung from the middle of the ceiling over a dark, shabby writing desk covered with a litter of yellowish, dusty documents. Under the flame of the single burner which made the place ablaze with light, a plump little man was writing hard, his nose very near the desk. His head was perfectly bald and about the same drab tint as the paper's. He appeared pretty dusty, too. I didn't notice whether there were any cobwebs on him, but I shouldn't wonder if there were, because he looked as though he had been imprisoned for years in that little hole. The way he dropped his pen and sat blinking my way upset me very much. And his dungeon was hot and musty. It smelt of gas and mushrooms and seemed to be somewhere a 120 feet below the ground. Solid, heavy stacks of paper filled all the corners halfway up to the ceiling. And when the thought flashed upon me that these were the premises of the marine board and that this fellow must be connected in some way with ships and sailors and the sea, my astonishment took my breath away. One couldn't imagine why the marine board should keep that "'bald, fat creature slaving down there. "'For some reason or other I felt sorry "'and ashamed to have found him out in his wretched captivity. "'I asked gently and sorrowfully, "'The shipping office, please.' "'He piped up in a contemptuous squeaky voice "'which made me start. "'Not here. Try the passage on the other side. "'Street side. This is the dock side. "'You've lost your way.' "'He spoke in such a spiteful tone "'that I thought he was going to round off with the words, "'You fool!' and perhaps he meant to. But what he finished sharply with was, shut the door quietly after you. And I did shut it quietly, you bet, quick and quiet. The indomitable spirit of that chap impressed me. I wonder sometimes whether he has succeeded in writing himself into liberty and a pension at last, or had to go out of his gaslighted grave straight into that other dark one where nobody would want to intrude. My humanity was pleased to discover he had so much kick left in him, but I was not comforted in the least. It occurred to me that if Mr Powell had the same sort of temper, however, I didn't give myself time to think and scuttled across the space at the foot of the stairs into the passage where I had been told to try. And I tried the first door I came to right away, without any hanging back, because coming loudly from the hall above an amazed and scandalised voice wanted to know what sort of game I was up to down there. "'Don't you know there's no admittance that way?' it roared. But if there was anything more I shut it out of my hearing by means of a door marked private on the outside. It led me into a six feet wide strip between a long counter and the wall, taken off a spacious vaulted room with a grated window and a glazed door giving daylight to the farther end. The first thing I saw right in front of me were three middle-aged men having a sort of romp together round about another fellow with a thin long neck and sloping shoulders who stood up on a desk writing on a large sheet of paper and taking no notice except that he grinned quietly to himself. They turned very sour at once when they saw me. I heard one of them mutter, Hello, what are we here? I want to see Mr Powell, please, I said, very civil but firm. I would let nothing scare me away now. This was the shipping office right enough. It was after three o'clock, and the business seemed over for the day with them. The long-necked fellow went on with his writing steadily. I observed that he was no longer grinning. The three others tossed their heads all together towards the far end of the room, where a fifth man had been looking on at their antics from a high stool. I walked up to him as boldly as if he had been the devil himself. With one foot raised up and resting on the crossbar of his seat, he never stopped swinging the other, which was well clear of the stone floor. He had unbuttoned the top of his waistcoat, and he wore his tall hat very far at the back of his head. He had a full, unwrinkled face and such clear shining eyes that his grey beard looked quite false on him, stuck on for a disguise. You said just now he resembled Socrates, didn't you? I didn't know about that. This Socrates was a wise man, I believe. It was, assented Marlow, and a true friend of youth. He lectured them in a peculiarly exasperating manner. It was a way he had. Then give me Powell every time, declared our new acquaintance sturdily. He didn't lecture me in any way, not he. He said, how do you do, quite kindly to my mumble. Then says he, looking very hard at me, I don't think I know you, do I? No, sir, I said and down went my heart, sliding into my boots, just as the time had come to summon up all my cheek. There's nothing meaner in the world than a piece of impudence that isn't carried off well. For fear of appearing shame-faced, I started about it so free and easy as almost to frighten myself. He listened for a while, looking at my face with surprise and curiosity, and then held up his hand. I was glad enough to shut up, I can tell you. "'Well, you're a cool hand,' says he.' and that friend of yours too. He pestered me coming here every day for a fortnight till a captain I'm acquainted with was good enough to give him a berth. And no sooner he's provided for than he turns you on. You youngsters don't seem to mind whom you get into trouble. It was my turn now to stare with surprise and curiosity. He hadn't been talking loud, but he lowered his voice still more. "'Don't you know it's illegal?' I wondered what he was driving at, till I remembered that procuring a berth for a sailor is a penal offence under the Act. That clause was directed, of course, against the swindling practices of the boarding-house crimps. It had never struck me it would apply to everybody alike, no matter what the motive, because I believed then that people on shore did their work with care and foresight. I was confounded at the idea, but Mr Powell made me soon see that an Act of Parliament hasn't any sense of its own, It has only the sense that's put into it, and that's precious little sometimes. He didn't mind helping a young man to a ship now and then, he said, but if we kept on coming constantly, it would soon get about that he was doing it for money. A pretty thing that would be. The senior shipping master of the Port of London hauled up in a police court and fined £50, says he. I've another four years to serve to get my pension. It could be made to look very black against me, and don't you make any mistake about it, he says. "'and all the time, with one knee well up, "'he went on swinging his other leg like a boy on a gate "'and looking at me very straight with his shining eyes. "'I was confounded, I tell you. "'It made me sick to hear him imply "'that somebody would make a report against him. "'Oh,' I asked, shocked, "'who would think of such a scurvy trick, sir?' "'I was half disgusted with him "'for having the mere notion of it. "'Who?' says he, speaking very low. "'Anybody.' One of the official messengers, maybe. I've risen to be the senior of this office, and we are all very good friends here. But don't you think that my colleagues that sit next to me wouldn't like to go up to this desk by the window four years in advance of the regulation time? Or even one year, for that matter. That's human nature. I could not help turning my head. The three fellows who had been skylarking when I came in were now talking together very soberly, and the long-necked chap was going on with his writing still. He seemed to me the most dangerous of the lot. I saw him side-face, and his lips were set very tight. I had never looked at mankind in that light before. When one's young, human nature shocks one. But what startled me most was to see the door I had come through open slowly and give passage to a head in a uniform cap with a board of trade badge. It was that blamed old doorkeeper from the hall. He had run me to earth and meant to dig me out, too. He walked up the office, smirking craftily, cap in hand. "'What is it, Simons?' asked Mr Powell. "'I was only wondering where this here gentleman had gone to, sir. "'He slipped past me upstairs, sir.' "'I felt mighty uncomfortable. "'That's all right, Simons. I know the gentleman,' says Mr Powell, as serious as a judge. "'Very well, sir. Of course, sir. "'I saw the gentleman running races all by himself down here, so I... "'It's all right, I tell you,' Mr Powell cut him short with a wave of his hand and, as the old fraud walked off at last, he raised his eyes to me. I did not know what to do, stay there or clear out or say that I was sorry. Let's see, says he, what did you tell me your name was? Now, observe, I hadn't given him my name at all, and his question embarrassed me a bit. Somehow or other it didn't seem proper for me to fling his own name at him, as it were, so I merely pulled out my new certificate from my pocket and put it into his hand unfolded so that he could read Charles Powell written very plain on the parchment. He dropped his eyes onto it and after a while laid it quietly on the desk by his side. I didn't know whether he meant to make any remark on this coincidence. Before he had time to say anything, the glass door came open with a bang and a tall active man rushed in with great strides. His face looked very red below his high silk hat. You could see at once he was the skipper of a big ship. Mr Powell, after telling me in an undertone to wait a little, addressed him in a friendly way. I've been expecting you in every moment to fetch away your articles, Captain. Here they are, all ready for you and turning to a pile of agreements lying at his elbow, he took up the topmost of them. From where I stood, I could read the words Ship Ferndale, written in a large, round hand on the first page. No, Mr Powell, they aren't ready, worst luck, says that skipper. I've got to ask you to strike out my second officer. He seemed excited and bothered. He explained that his second mate had been working on board all the morning. At one o'clock he went out to get a bit of dinner and didn't turn up at two as he ought to have done. Instead there came a message from the hospital with a note signed by a doctor, collarbone and one arm broken, let himself be knocked down by a pair horse van while crossing the road outside the dock gate as if he had neither eyes nor ears, and the ship ready to leave the dock at six o'clock tomorrow morning. Mr Powell dipped his pen and began to turn the leaves of the agreement over. We must then take his name off, he says, in a kind of unconcerned sing-song. What am I to do? burst out the skipper. This office closes at four o'clock. I can't find a man in half an hour. This office closes at four, repeats Mr Powell, glancing up and down the pages and touching up a letter here and there with perfect indifference. Even if I managed to lay hold sometime today of a man ready to go at such short notice, I couldn't ship him regularly here, could I? Mr Powell was busy drawing his pen through the entries relating to that unlucky second mate and making a note in the margin. You could sign him on yourself on board, says he without looking up, but I don't think you'll find easily an officer for such a peer-head jump. Upon this, the fine-looking skipper gave signs of distress. The ship mustn't miss the next morning's tide. He had to take on board 40 tonnes of dynamite and a 120 tonnes of gunpowder at a place down the river before proceeding to sea. It was all arranged for next day. There would be no end of fuss and complications if the ship didn't turn up in time. I couldn't help hearing all this while wishing him to take himself off because I wanted to know why Mr Powell had told me to wait. After what he had been saying, there didn't seem any object in my hanging about. If I had had my certificate in my pocket, I should have tried to slip away quietly, but Mr Powell had turned about into the same position I found him in at first and was again swinging his leg. My certificate open on the desk was under his left elbow and I couldn't very well go up and jerk it away. I don't know, says he carelessly, addressing the helpless captain, but looking fixedly at me with an expression as if I hadn't been there. I don't know whether I ought to tell you that I know of a disengaged second mate at hand. Do you mean you've got him here, shouts the other, looking all over the empty public part of the office as if he were ready to fling himself bodily upon anything resembling a second mate. He had been so full of his difficulty that I verily believe he had never noticed me. Or perhaps, seeing me inside, he may have thought I was some understrapper belonging to the place. But when Mr. Powell nodded in my direction, he became very quiet and gave me a long stare. Then he stooped to Mr. Powell's ear. I suppose he imagined he was whispering, but I heard him well enough. Looks very respectable. Certainly, says the shipping master, quite calm and staring all the time at me. His name's Powell. Oh, I see, says the skipper, as if struck all of a heap. But is he ready to join at once? I had a sort of vision of my lodgings, in the north of London too, beyond Dalston, away to the devil, and all my gear scattered about, and my empty sea chest somewhere in an outhouse the good people I was staying with had at the end of their sooty strip of garden. I heard the shipping master say, in the coolest sort of way, he'll sleep on board tonight. He had better, says the captain of the Ferndale, very businesslike, as if the whole thing were settled. I can't say I was dumb for joy, as you may suppose. It wasn't exactly that. I was more by way of being out of breath with the quickness of it. It didn't seem possible that this was happening to me. But the skipper, after he had talked for a while with Mr Powell, too low for me to hear, became visibly perplexed. I suppose he had heard I was freshly passed and without experience as an officer because he turned about and looked me over as if I had been exposed for sale. He's young, he mutters. Looks smart enough, though. You're smart and willing, this to me, very sudden and loud, and all that, aren't you? I just managed to open and shut my mouth no more, being taken unawares. But it was enough for him. He made as if I had deafened him with protestations of my smartness and willingness. "'Of course, of course. All right.' And then, turning to the shipping master, who sat there swinging his leg, he said that he certainly couldn't go to sea without a second officer. I stood by as if all these things were happening to some other chap whom I was seeing through with it. Mr Powell stared at me with those shining eyes of his. But that bothered skipper turns upon me again as though he wanted to snap my head off. "'You aren't too big to be told how to do things, are you?' "'You've a lot to learn yet, though you mayn't think so.' "'I had half a mind to save my dignity by telling him "'that if it were my seamanship he was alluding to, "'I wanted him to understand that a fellow who had survived "'being turned inside out for an hour and a half by Captain R "'was equal to any demand his old ship was likely to make on his competence.' However, he didn't give me a chance to make that sort of fool of myself because before I could open my mouth he had gone round on another tack and was addressing himself affably to Mr Powell, who, swinging his leg, never took his eyes off me. I'll take your young friend willingly, Mr Powell. If you let him sign on as second mate at once, I'll take the articles away with me now. It suddenly dawned upon me that the innocent skipper of the Ferndale had taken it for granted that I was a relative of the shipping master. I was quite astonished at this discovery, though indeed the mistake was natural enough under the circumstances. What I ought to have admired was the reticence with which this misunderstanding had been established and acted upon. But I was too stupid then to admire anything. All my anxiety was that this should be cleared up. I was ass enough to wonder exceedingly at Mr Powell failing to notice the misapprehension. I saw a slight twitch come and go on his face, but instead of setting right that mistake, the shipping master swung round on his stool and addressed me as Charles. He did. And I detected him taking a hasty squint at my certificate just before, because clearly, till he did so, he was not sure of my Christian name. "'Now then, come round in front of the desk, Charles,' says he in a loud voice. "'Charles!' At first, I declared to you, it didn't seem possible that he was addressing himself to me." I even looked round for that Charles, but there was nobody behind me except the thin-necked chap still hard at his writing, and the other three shipping masters who were changing their coats and reaching for their hats, making ready to go home. It was the industrious thin-necked man who, without laying down his pen, lifted with his left hand a flap near his desk and said kindly, "'Pass this way.' I walked through in a trance. "'Faced Mr Powell, from whom I learned that we were bound to Port Elizabeth first, "'and signed my name on the articles of the ship Ferndale as second mate, "'the voyage not to exceed two years. "'You won't fail to join, eh?' says the captain anxiously. "'It would cause no end of trouble and expense if you did. "'You've got a good six hours to get your gear together, "'and then you'll have time to snatch a sleep on board "'before the crew joins in the morning.' It was easy enough for him to talk of getting ready in six hours for a voyage that was not to exceed two years. He hadn't to do that trick himself, and with his sea chest locked up in an outhouse, the key of which had been mislaid for a week, as I remembered. But neither was I much concerned. The idea that I was absolutely going to sea at six o'clock next morning hadn't quite got into my head yet. It had been too sudden. Mr. Powell, slipping the articles into a long envelope, spoke with a sort of cold half-laugh without looking at either of us. Mind you don't disgrace the name, Charles. And the skipper chimes in very kindly. He'll do well enough, I dare say. I'll look after him a bit. Upon this, he grabs the articles, says something about trying to run in for a minute to see that poor devil in the hospital, and off he goes with his heavy swinging step after telling me sternly, don't you go like that poor fellow and get yourself run over by a cart as if you hadn't either eyes or ears. Mr Powell, says I timidly. There was by then only the thin-necked man left in the office with us, and he was already by the door, standing on one leg to turn the bottom of his trousers up before going away. Mr. Powell, says I, I believe the captain of the Ferndale was thinking all the time that I was a relation of yours. I was rather concerned about the propriety of it all, you know, but Mr. Powell didn't seem to be in the least. Did he? says he. That's funny, because it seems to me too that I've been a sort of good uncle to several of you young fellows lately. Don't you think so yourself? However, if you don't like it, you may put him right when you get out to sea.' At this I felt a bit queer. Mr Powell had rendered me a very good service, because it's a fact that with us merchant sailors the first voyage as officer is the real start in life. He had given me no less than that. I told him warmly that he had done for me more that day than all my relations put together ever did. Oh, no, no, says he. I guess it's that shipment of explosives waiting down the river which has done most for you. Forty tons of dynamite have been your best friend today, young man. That was true too, perhaps. Anyway, I saw clearly enough that I had nothing to thank myself for. But as I tried to thank him, he checked my stammering. Don't be in a hurry to thank me, says he. The voyage isn't finished yet. Our new acquaintance paused, then added meditatively, Queer man, as if it made any difference. Queer man. It's certainly unwise to admit any sort of responsibility for our actions, whose consequences we are never able to foresee, remarked Marlowe by way of assent. The consequence of his action was that I got a ship, said the other. That could not do much harm, he added with a laugh, which argued a probably unconscious contempt of general ideas. But Marlowe was not put off. He was patient and reflective. He had been at sea many years, and I verily believe he liked sea life because upon the whole it is favourable to reflection. I am speaking of the now nearly vanished sea life under sail. To those who will be surprised at this statement, I will point out that this life secured for the mind of him who embraced it the inestimable advantages of solitude and silence. Marlow had the habit of pursuing general ideas in a peculiar manner, between jest and earnest. Oh, I wouldn't suggest, said he, that your namesake, Mr. Powell, the shipping master, had done you much harm. Such was hardly his intention. And even if it had been, he would not have had the power. He was but a man, and the incapacity to achieve anything distinctly good or evil is inherent in our earthly condition. Mediocrity is our mark. And perhaps it's just as well, since for the most part we cannot be certain of the effect of our actions.' "'I don't know about the effect,' the other stood up to Marlowe manfully. "'What effect did you expect, anyhow? "'I tell you, he did something uncommonly kind.' "'He did what he could,' Marlowe retorted gently. "'And on his own showing, that was not a very great deal. "'I cannot help thinking that there was some malice "'in the way he seized the opportunity to serve you. "'He managed to make you uncomfortable. "'You wanted to go to sea, "'but he jumped at the chance of accommodating your desire with a vengeance.' I'm inclined to think your cheek alarmed him. And this was an excellent occasion to suppress you altogether. For if you accepted, he was relieved of you with every appearance of humanity. And if you made objections, after requesting his assistance, mind you, it was open to him to drop you as a sort of impostor. You might have had to decline that birth for some very valid reason, from sheer necessity, perhaps. The notice was too uncommonly short, but under the circumstances you'd have covered yourself with ignominy. Our new friend knocked the ashes out of his pipe. Quite a mistake, he said. I'm not of the declining sort, though I'll admit it was something like telling a man that you would like a bath and in consequence being instantly knocked overboard to sink or swim with your clothes on. However, I didn't feel as if I were in deep water at first. I left the shipping office quietly and for a time strolled along the streets as easy as if I had a week before me to fit myself out. But by and by I reflected that the notice was even shorter than it looked. The afternoon was well advanced. I had some things to get, a lot of small matters to attend to, one or two persons to see. One of them was an aunt of mine, my only relation, who quarrelled with poor father as long as he lived about some silly matter that had neither right nor wrong to it. She left her money to me when she died. I used always to go and see her, for decency's sake. I had so much to do before night that I didn't know where to begin. I felt inclined to sit down on the curb and hold my head in my hands. It was as if an engine had been started going under my skull. Finally, I sat down in the first cab that came along, and it was a hard matter to keep on sitting there, I can tell you, while we rolled up and down the streets, pulling up here and there, the parcels accumulating round me, and the engine in my head gathering more way every minute. The composure of the people on the pavements was provoking to a degree, and as to the people in shops, they were benumbed, more than half frozen, imbecile. Funny how it affects you to be in a peculiar state of mind, Everybody that does not act up to your excitement seems so confoundedly unfriendly. And my state of mind, what with the hurry, the worry, and the growing exultation, was peculiar enough. That engine in my head went round at its top speed, hour after hour, until about eleven at night it let up on me suddenly at the entrance to the dock, before large iron gates in a dead wall. End of Part 1. Chapter 1. Section 1.